Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you on a cold morning. Winter is back for a day or two. Well, I want to extend my welcome to our new members that Drew's already extended at the beginning of the service. We are glad to have you part of the Gateway family. And if there's others of you who've been coming who you've yet to join Gateway, would be like to be part of this church family. Just see me, see CJ, one of us. We'd be happy to talk to you about that. Talk to you more about membership here and if you get connected with the body of Christ here at Gateway. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John. If you're new with us this morning, we've been working through the Gospel of John over the last several weeks. And today we come to John chapter 3. But as we begin, before we get to John 3, I want to remind us, like I do most weeks, of why John wrote the Gospel of John. Because it has bearing on everything that we talk about every week. And John gave us his purpose statement in John chapter 20, verse 31. And the verse is up on the screen, and I'd read it to you most weeks. But I thought today, y'all can say it with me. Because it's important, because this is what the, the whole book of John's about. So would you just read this out loud with me? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, that is why we are studying the Gospel of John week by week, to remind us weekly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Friends, we all need, I need to have my eyes focused on who Jesus is. In the midst of the busyness of life and all the distractions of life, for us to be refocused on the person, the work, the character, the nature of Christ is so important for us. Because if we believe in him, he gives to us life, life in his name. And so, so much is at stake in our belief. That's why we're focusing our time together on the Gospel of John right now. As as the Apostle John has been writing this book, he shows us that Jesus is the Christ and does that in two different ways. He shows us, first of all, signs. Signs that kind of authenticate who Jesus is. And Drew showed us the first sign just a few weeks ago when he talked to us about Jesus changing water into wine. And so we'll see throughout the Gospel of John signs, and there's many other signs. In fact, there's references here we saw last week, the signs that aren't even recorded for us that have been done that show that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. But in addition to the signs, there's a second thing the Apostle John includes for us here to help us see that Jesus is the Christ. And that's what we call discourses. Discourses are conversations, talks, speeches. And so you'll see mixed throughout the Gospel of John both signs and discourses. And whereas Drew showed us the first sign of changing water into wine, today we get to the first discourse, the first recorded lengthy conversation, and it was to an individual by the name of Nicodemus. Now, our context where we left off last week was at the end of chapter 2. Now, it's the account of Jesus cleansing the temple. Just a refresher, or if you weren't here last week, in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, we said it was a story of contrast. There's a story of contrast between the temple was supposed to be a place of worship, a place of pure worship, a place for the nations to come versus what it had become. We saw a contrast as well last week between the ongoing sacrifices that would happen in the temple versus why we don't do ongoing sacrifices today because Christ is the final sacrifice. But most of our time last week we talked about the contrast between belief and unbelief. And that is really important as we come to the story of Nicodemus. John is very intentional in organizing the, the Gospel of John so to make a case for us that Jesus is the Christ. And so last week where we left off on belief and unbelief, the story of Nicodemus follows after that for a reason. And so as we begin, I just want to read for us what we already looked at last week just to kind of set the stage for us of what's happening with Nicodemus. So John chapter 2, go back just a few verses. In verse 23, again, it's what we looked at last week, but it sets the stage for today. Verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Remember from last week, we said what this means was basically Jesus did not believe their belief. 
The people came to Jesus out of a curiosity. They saw these signs, these wonders, these miracles, and it caught their attention. But they really didn't believe in him as who he was. So Jesus did not believe their belief because he knew what was in their heart. And with that in mind, we get to the story of Nicodemus. Jesus knows what's in a man. Jesus knows what's in Nicodemus' heart. And basically, Nicodemus is an account for us of Jesus not believing this man's professed belief at this point here. And so as we get to John chapter 3 this morning, I want to go and tell you what the main idea of the text is that we're going to kind of unpack as we work through the sermon this morning. But I want you to see it so you can be thinking about it as we read the text. And it's simply this, that unlike curiosity, unlike curiosity, a true belief in Jesus involves receiving a radical transformation from God. Unlike just a curiosity about who Jesus is, unlike just a passing glance, unlike just a a curious glance of who this guy might be, a true belief in Jesus will involve in our lives a radical transformation, not that we create, but a radical transformation that comes to us from God himself. Friends, it's easy to be curious about Jesus. It's easy to pray a prayer, walk an aisle, get baptized. It's an entirely different thing to have a radical transformation that God grants to us here. So let's come to John chapter 3. Today we're only going to look at the first 10 verses of, the, of, of John 3. This is a very rich text. And so I think even your bulletin says we're going to do the whole, uh, the whole first like 21 verses. There's just no way we can tackle that and do justice to it. So we're going to do this over two weeks on this part of John 3. But we're in John chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. Can I ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of God's word as we get to our text for this morning. John chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we are thankful that you've given it to us to show us here in John who Jesus is. And in this particular passage, show us what true belief looks like. And Father, I know for many in this room that talk of the gospel and talk of John 3 brings back so many familiar thoughts. But Lord, I pray this day that you would give us all grace and eyes to see, perhaps in new ways, what this gospel, this good news really is and how it changes. So we commit this time to you and ask you to use it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So the setting this morning of what's happening here as we get to John chapter 3. In verse 1, let's see what's going on here. First of all, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So who is Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus was a poster boy for Pharisaic Judaism. If you want the guy who would be on the poster of what a Pharisaic Jew looks like, it is going to be Nicodemus. In fact, in verse 10 in our text, Jesus refers to him as the teacher of the Jews. He was a man of incredible influence. And in fact, in verse 2, when he addresses Jesus, he says, we have no. He's representing others. He's a man of influence. Again, he's kind of the poster boy, if you will, for what a Pharisaic Jew looks like. What do we know about him outside of what this text tells us? We know he was one of the 70 who composed the Sanhedrin. 
The Sanhedrin was like the Jewish religious Supreme Court, if you will. And so he was one of those 70. He was a man of incredible influence over the Jewish people. Because he was on the Sanhedrin, we know from that that he would be a man who would carefully obey every part of the law. Like he would be very religiously devoted to the law. He'd be a man of upstanding moral character, a man who would teach people to follow the traditions of the, of the elders, a man of deep religious practice, and yet a man who was profoundly spiritually blind in the midst of all that religiosity that he's doing. He's a religious man with very inadequate faith. Look at verse 2. What does Nicodemus do? This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, let's just pause there. Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Well, different people have different theories on this. I feel like I say that a lot when we get work through different texts of the Bible. Some people say, well, he was probably afraid. You know, he was, a, he was with the Sanhedrin, so he was a person of influence. And if people saw him talking to Jesus, it could lead to all sorts of speculation. Uh, friends, that is just speculation. We, we really don't know that he was afraid. There's no evidence that he might have been fearful, though he could have been. Well, some people say, well, he came at night because the rabbis this time were commended for setting late into night. It was a mark of, of character, a mark of influence that they would come at night to learn. And so he was just doing what rabbis did. He would learn at night. Well, maybe rabbis did that. Again, that's speculation. The text doesn't tell us that. Some people just said, well, Jesus was really busy and he wanted uninterrupted time with Jesus. And so that's what it was. Well, again, maybe we don't know. What we do know, though, is why did John record the things he did in the gospel? And why does John share with us certain details? Well, one, John likes to include historical details. John tells us things. Remember, he has Jews and Gentiles in mind. He wants to understand what happened. So why does it tell us that he came at night? Well, because he came at night. But secondly, John also loves symbols. You'll see as we work through the Gospel of John this year, John loves imagery. And every time you see night and darkness recorded in John, there is an image associated with that. And John uses night to be an image for moral darkness. Spiritual darkness. And so I think John's doing a little bit of a play on words here for us. Because yes, Nicodemus came at night. But John is highlighting that to show us this man who thinks he knows a lot is really himself in the dark. And spiritually blind. It's an image for us, though it literally happened that way. A religious man who was spiritually dark and blind and did not, was not able to see the truth of who Jesus was. So why did a spiritually blind man come to Jesus at night? Well, he tells us in verse 2. Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Why did he come? He has seen signs. He was curious. Nicodemus came out of a curiosity about who Jesus was. It was the very thing we talked about last week in verse 23. Now, when he was in the Jerusalem of the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Nicodemus is one of those. Nicodemus is one of these people described in chapter 2, verse 23, who saw the signs and had a belief that Jesus did not believe in this. He came to investigate out of curiosity, and he came from others as well. It says we. He, he was a representative on that. And notice as well when he addresses Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Don't let that make you think he's got some type of saving faith here. All he's acknowledging is Jesus is doing things that a normal person can't do. And so he's simply saying, God is with you in a way we normally don't see God with people. So when we read it, you're from God, it can make it almost sound like saving faith, but it's really not that. He just is trying to figure out who this Jesus is. Is he a prophet? God's with him in a unique way. Could he be the Messiah? He's just here out of curiosity. But he is far from believing. And in fact, Jesus answers him, even though he never asks a question. You notice that in verse 2. He doesn't even ask a question. He just simply makes a statement. We know. He comes in as a teacher, as the one with authority, the one who thinks he's got it all figured out. We know that you must have come from God. He doesn't ask a question, but Jesus is going to turn 
the table on him, so to speak, here and show him what real belief really is. And unlike curiosity, Jesus will confront him with what genuine belief looks like. So look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What Jesus is doing here is calling Nicodemus' attention to something really important. He uses what we've already seen earlier in the Gospel of John, that double amen, that truly, truly. That means, listen up, this is important, don't miss what I'm about to say. Truly, truly. And so he gets his attention. The other thing he does to get his attention, we lose in the English here, but Jesus does a little bit of a wordplay here for Nicodemus. There's a Greek word, dunatai, that means to be able to do something. It's in fact the word that Nicodemus uses back in verse 2 when he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one literally is able to do these signs that you do. And so, he's, so the initial question idea of Nicodemus is, we know that you can't do what you do apart from God. But Jesus flips it on him in verse 3 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he is not able to see the kingdom of God. He takes the very word that Nicodemus used to ascribe to Jesus of what he's able to do and says, but guess what? You're not able to even see the kingdom of God. You're not able to do this apart from being born again. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. So he does this wordplay of being able to do something. And he's pointing Nicodemus to a very important truth that Nicodemus on his own will never be able to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus on his own will never be able to, to, to see the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? We know it is everything under God's sovereign rule. But for, what about for Nicodemus, for a Jew at the time, how would he understand it? He would understand the kingdom of God as being end times, resurrection, eternal life. And don't miss this. Nicodemus thought that the kingdom of God was something he could himself obtain. Because of his Jewish heritage, because of his observance of the law, he would have thought he could have obtained on his own work the kingdom of God. And in one simple sentence, Jesus obliterates any possibility of him being able to obtain on his own the kingdom of God. All the things that, that Nicodemus would have taught people of how they could get to the kingdom of God, Jesus just wipes out in this one simple sentence. What is the thing that Jesus tells him instead is the only way to get to the kingdom of God? Back in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, again, John likes to do a little bit of wordplay for us here. And the word that we translate again can actually, throughout the, throughout the Greek, be used in two different ways. It can mean again, like repeated, but it can also mean from above. And there's no really distinction. The same word can mean again or from above. And scholars kind of debate what is the best way to translate this. The historic way that most people are familiar with is unless you are born again. But some people really think the better way to render this verse is unless he is born from above. But again, I think John was intentional and used a word that could have both directions. Because I really believe this means unless a person is reborn from above. This, this word carries in it the idea of being born again, but being born again from above. And that image is significant because it's an image of regeneration. Friends, it's the image of not fixing something that's broken, but basically starting over. It's like if your car is in an accident, it's not that you've got your bumper bent in and you've got to get a new bumper put on and get it fixed. This is the image of your car is totaled and you cannot redeem it. There's nothing you do to make it work. It's totaled and you better start with a new car. That's the imagery that we have of being born again. It's not a fixing of a few things that are broken. It's not polishing off your rust. It's not making you a better person or fixing some attitudes. It is a total radical transformation, recreation of everything about you here. That is what it means to be born again. Total transformation, total renewal, total change of nature. And that radical change comes from above. There's no human striving that can create it. There's no human works they can get. There's not 
anything that we can do to make being born again happen. This means that Nicodemus, this man of influence with all of his gifts, with all of his position, with all of his knowledge, with all of his power, with all the stuff he has to offer, none of that makes any difference. He, in light of all that, he still cannot do anything to even see the kingdom of God on his own. And friends, the same is true for us as well. The criteria for seeing the kingdom of God, for experiencing the kingdom of God, for having eternal life is receiving a radical transformation, is receiving a change from God. And the best earthly image of that is birth here. Mere curiosity and Jesus won't get it. Mere religious activity won't get it. It is simply having a radical transformation from above so that we can enter, so we can see the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus can't see that. Nicodemus doesn't get it still. And look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is so blinded by his works-based righteousness. And when Jesus tries to tell him the spiritual truth that he needs to be born from above, he needs a radical change of his nature that comes from God. When Jesus tells him the truth, he is so blinded by his works-based righteousness of trying to earn God's favor and forgiveness, he can't fathom that and his imagination goes wild here. How can a man crawl back into the womb and be born again? He doesn't get it at all. But in missing the point, Jesus comes back and explains it again and gives us a little bit more insight into what this means. So look look at verse 5, and notice in verse 5 what's similar, but notice in verse 5 what's different, because Jesus changes a few words to clarify for us what all of this means. John 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So two changes here where Jesus elaborates. First of all, he replaces the idea of being born again with being born of water and the Spirit. What does this mean? Well, there's a common misunderstanding that water is referring to physical birth and Spirit is referring to spiritual birth. That's not what this text is actually about here. That's not a distinction in that. Here, water also is not baptism. Again, there's lots of ways this gets mistaken here on this one. What is water and the Spirit? These are images for life that are found throughout the Old Testament. Nicodemus would have immediate, should have immediately understood these are images of life. Think about this, the image of the Spirit. The Spirit of God was present in creation as a life giver. In Joel 2.28, the Old Testament writers were longing for the Spirit to come and bring life to people. And so you have this longing for the Spirit to come and bring life. The same thing as water. Water was used throughout the Old Testament for purification. And in fact, the idea of water and spirit is linked together. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 36, if you'll put that one up on the screen for us, I want you to see how water and spirit go together, not as one physical birth and one spiritual birth, but together as an image of life-giving change. This is what it says in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And then the next verse, in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh there. You see these two ideas, the link that in Ezekiel, water and spirit are not two different things. They are one in the same image here of God cleansing his people of God renewing his people. And so when Jesus says here that you are to be born again, you are to be born of water and of the Spirit, it's the image of God's radical transformation, God's work where he makes us clean, where he gives us new life, when he regenerates us, when he takes the old nature away and gives us a new nature, when we are reborn from above. But in case we miss it, Jesus elaborates a little bit more. Back in John chapter 3, verse 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Again, what's he saying here to Nicodemus and to us? When he says the word flesh, most of our minds go immediately to what Paul writes. We think of flesh as sin nature. That's not how John uses the word flesh. John uses the word flesh to mean our 
our human frailty, our bodies, our limitations of our human nature. Contrast that with the Spirit, third person of the Trinity, the life giver himself here, the one who has all power. You see this contrast with this frailty of ourselves and the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying, basically, you cannot attain salvation on your own. Even with the best Jewish pedigree that Nicodemus has, even with his family history, his heritage, even with all he does, even with his rigorous practice, his own efforts will never produce spiritual change in his life. And friends, the same is true for us. It doesn't matter if your mom and grandmom were great Christians. That makes no difference. It doesn't matter if you are here at Gateway every time the doors are open, and even some when the doors aren't even open. It doesn't matter if you do every single spiritual discipline, even the ones that we add in as, as encouraging things that the Bible doesn't require, like journaling and stuff. And you can do all that stuff. That will never gain you salvation. It doesn't matter if you're curious about Jesus, if you're just fascinated how Jesus might change you and give you a better life. None of that stuff, the works of the flesh, cannot work. Flesh only gives birth to flesh. But when the Spirit of God comes upon you, radical transformation happens. That which is born of the Spirit, the new life the Holy Spirit gives to you, that radical transformation changes you. And so the radical transformation that we need is born anew from above. It's born with new life where we're purified, redeemed, and regenerated. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He takes it even one step further here. Verse 7. He says, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. I said over and over as we go through the Gospel of John, John requires a verdict to us to make. It requires us to make a decision. And notice Jesus adds a word here he didn't say before. You must be born again. It's not just enough to, for, to say that up to this point, this is the only way. Now Jesus demands a response. You must be born again. What are you going to do with this? This is the only way to have eternal life. This is the only way for you to see the kingdom of God. This is the only way for you to have a new nature. It's a radical transformation. You must be reborn from Above, there is simply no other way. No, nothing our self can do, no righteousness, no heritage, no works. Absolutely nothing can gain this except for what the must is here, being born again, getting a radical change from God. True belief is not curiosity. True belief is a grace gift from God to you that transforms you as he replaces your old nature with a new nature. But there's one more thing that I've missed in this passage for years in verse 8 that shows us this radical transformation that we have in Jesus when we have true belief. And that is in verse 8. A radical transformation will lead to outward change in our life. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The image here is you can't see where the wind stops. You can't see where the wind starts. You can't see the wind but you can hear it on a really windy day, windy day. You can hear the, the trees rustling. You can see the effects. I mean, you can't see the wind, but you can see the effects. Notice what Jesus says this image is really about. The last phrase of verse 8. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is this about? Everyone who is born of the Spirit, though the people, the surrounding people, the non-believers like Nicodemus, may not be able to explain why you're different. They may not be able to explain how you got to be different or how you're going to really be different one day, but they know that something is different now. They can't explain the wind of the Spirit of God at work in your life, but they know there's a sound of something different coming from you. And so if we really believe in Jesus, it's not a curiosity about him. It is a radical transformation that makes us born again, reborn from above, and it has the effect of changing us in such a way that even the non-believers around will notice, though they cannot explain it, what has happened in our lives, that something is different. But Nicodemus does not even 
get that. Look at how he responds in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I almost imagine Nicodemus frustrated at this point. Again, remember, he is the teacher of Israel. He's a man of such insight and wisdom, supposedly. And Jesus keeps telling things, and he's just like, I don't get it. How is this even possible? And Jesus responds to him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? The one who came in knowing stuff now is leaving perplexed. The one he thought he had it figured out has had the whole tables turned on him. But friends, it should not have surprised him. I showed you a few minutes ago from Ezekiel the imagery of the water and the spirit in the Old Testament. All the Old Testament's pointing to Christ. All the Old Testament's pointing to the Messiah who was coming. This guy who was a teacher of Israel should have seen the signs and been able to see who Jesus was. But he missed it. And his confusion leads to another truly, truly, and that's for next week. Because there's a lot more riches to come in this. But back to where we're at today for these first 10 verses. I know it seems awkward splitting a passage in the middle of it, but there is a natural break here because after this next verse, Nicodemus drops from the passage. The dialogue from Nicodemus ends where we're stopping today because Jesus addressed it more broadly. The you becomes plural. He's speaking to all of us now in light of what's happened with Nicodemus. He now calls all of us of what it means to believe that God so loved the world he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And we're going to get more into that Next week. But for today, the focus is simply this. Unlike curiosity, true belief in Jesus involves receiving a radical transformation from God. And like I say, week after week, the Gospel of John forces a question on us. And so this particular text drives us back to the question of how are we approaching Jesus? Are you approaching Jesus out of a curiosity of, I mean, this is kind of cool. I wonder who this guy is. You know, he claimed to do miracles. Are you approaching him out of curiosity? Are you approaching him because he's changed you and you want to worship him? Are you approaching Jesus hoping you'll gain something out of it? Or is it the belief that chapter 2 described that Jesus himself does not believe in? Are you seeking to find the kingdom of God on your own like Nicodemus, thinking that because your mom was Christian, because you go to church, or because you do certain things, or all these things, because you're a decent person, you're going to get to heaven? This text destroys all that, and so it forces the question of what is our confidence in? Is your confidence that you will see the kingdom of God, that you will enter the kingdom of God? Is your confidence because you've been reborn? No effort of your own, but what Christ has done in you. Or is your confidence in something else? And if it's in anything besides that Christ has made you new, there is no hope of eternal life in that. But for those of you who know with confidence that you have been reborn from above, We know with confidence that Christ has changed you. He's given you a radical transformation. I think it bears two questions. The first question is chapter 8, or verse 8 for us there. The wind blows where it pleases. Is there transformation in your life that's obvious to those around you? Does the fact that you are new in Christ, is it making a difference? Is the fact that you are new in Christ and you've received a radical transformation now, that you've been reborn from him, does it make a difference in how you treat your wife your spouse, your kids, your co-workers, your friends. As there a change, would the lost around you even know that you are a follower of Christ? Even though they may not understand your testimony, your story, or how God did it, can they look at you and be like, there's something different about that person. I want to know what it is. Because this text bears us to force that question as well. But secondly, friends, if we really grasp the significance of this, that there's nothing we can contribute to our salvation, that it is all completely of God, How are we doing praising God and thanking God for that? Because we have nothing to bring to the table. It's all God's work. There's nothing. Again, Nicodemus had all the pedigree you could want, all the influence you could want, all the knowledge you could want. And Jesus says that doesn't matter. 
The only thing is you must be born again. Friends, if we grasp that, is that leading us to worship God, to praise God? How are we doing daily recognizing our salvation and praising God for it? To help us in that, one of the things we do regularly here is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, communion. It's a grace gift from God to the church because it forces us to pause and remember the sacrifice that was made for the forgiveness of our sins. Friends, we can be reborn from above because though we have nothing to offer, Christ has done it for us. Christ has made a way when there is no way for us to be made new. He has come and he has done it for us. So that brings us to our time of communion today, which I pray today in light of thinking about John 3 will cause you to pause and reflect. And if you're in Christ, to worship God and to praise him for all that he has done in making you born again. And giving you a rebirth from above. And giving you a radical transformation, a new nature that changes everything about you. As we come to the Lord's table here, as we come to communion, it's just, it bears reading what we read every time we gather to do this ordinance. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I just want you to listen as I read this. For I see from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And we give him thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what we see from there that bears repeating, though we've heard it many times before, is what we're about to do in taking the, the juice and taking the bread reminds us of the cost of our forgiveness, friends. It may be free for us for receiving, but it came with a high cost. The fact we can be reborn from above required the Son of God, God himself, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, to have his body broken, his blood spilled, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Last week when we talked about the Passover and we saw the contrast of the temple and why we don't slaughter sheep here in our worship service and have blood running down the aisles. Why don't we do that anymore? Because Christ was the final sacrificial lamb. All those sacrifices were blood coverings for their sin and pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that was coming. And friends, Jesus has done that. There are no more sacrifices now because Christ is the final sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. And we remember that today. Remember that sacrifice that enabled us to have a radical transformation. So I just encourage you as we come to the table this morning to take a few minutes to pray and to thank God and remember the sacrifice that was paid so that you could be reborn, so that you could have new life, that you could be born again. But First Corinthians 11 continues in verse 27 with a warning for us. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Friends, when we come to the Lord's Supper, when we come to communion, that's why we don't just tag this on and invite you to rush up, grab it, and, and run back to your seat. Because there's a serious warning here as well. Did you hear what it said? Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty for fainting the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What are we examining ourselves? We're examining ourselves first and foremost to make sure we're in Christ. Friends, this is something just for followers of Christ. If you are born again, if you've received that radical transformation, this is for you. If that's not happened to you yet, and you're, or you're not sure that's happened to you yet, this is not for you. Just stay in your seat and pray, and we'll be glad to talk to you more about it. This is for people who know for certainty they are a child of God. 
Christ has redeemed them. But secondly, I believe this causes us to cause ourselves to stop and to seek the Lord. Again, if we are in Christ, if He's radically changed us, there should be change in our life. Are there areas of strongholds of sin in our life that we're not repenting of? We need to do business with the Lord before we come to the table, not take this in a half-hearted way. When you think about the bread and you think about Christ's body being broken for you, when you see the juice and it reminds you of His blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, friends, we can't do that in a light-hearted way and still enjoying our sin. The reality is the Bible tells us that if anyone says that he does not have sin, he lies and deceives himself. The reality is we all have sin in our lives. And the question is, are we confessing? Are we coming to the Lord asking to change us, transform us, and to be made new in Christ? And so what I want us to do before we come to observe the Lord's Supper is to take a minute or two and just have some time for you to talk to the Lord. Just quietly where you are to pray to the Lord. And while you do that, I'm going to ask our praise team to come and go ahead and get the elements. I want to make sure they get a chance to participate as well. And so we're going to ask our praise team to come and to be able to get the elements as well. If our deacons will come help us as we serve those, you take a minute where you are right now. Just pray and talk to the Lord. We'll serve the, the communion to our praise team. And then after that, they'll begin to play quietly, and then we'll invite you to come join us as well. So take a few minutes and do business with the Lord.